We know very little about consciousness. The thoughts and memories which make up your identity come from some dark, unreachable place in the depths of your head. And you can't control them. You have no more control over the next thing that you think as you do over the next thing I'm going to say. And yet somehow they mean so much to you and to your identity, to who you are. When you sit back and observe consciousness, the I, it's completely mysterious to us. Why do we have this feeling that we are conscious and that we are individuals who have our own ways of thinking and feeling? And at the same time, it feels as though it's somewhere in your head. And that's important. You don't feel like you are your head, but that you own a head and that you, the ghost in the machine, is within it. The body is something which you own, something which you possess, but it isn't you. But unless you believe in a soul or the ghost in the machine, and I would recommend that you don't, then we know this to not be true. In some sense, your consciousness is the sum of its parts, and it's essentially just carbon, like the rest of you. Your consciousness exists due to the makeup of water, carbon, atoms, electrical impulses, which you are. So in this sense, you don't have a head or a brain. You are your brain and your head. But our consciousness made of carbon, our carbon-based life, that's the only one that we know. We don't know of any other form of consciousness that exists, but we're moving into a time when other forms of consciousness could soon exist. It's on the horizon. Rather than carbon-based life, there's artificial forms of life. Artificial consciousness, artificial intelligence. But even the most wild artificial intelligence that we can imagine doesn't seem to us to be the same as our human biological consciousness. But we know so little about the mind and about how it works and about why we are conscious. How can we ever really say with certainty that it isn't basically just the same thing? And this is one of the main themes of Ian McEwan's most recent novel, Machines Like Me. As anyone who's met me or listened to any of my previous podcast episodes will know, I really, really like Ian McEwan. I did an episode on every novel he's written up to The Cockroach, which I then hadn't read but now have, and Machines Like Me, which I've also now obviously read. And Machines Like Me was no exception to the rule. I really, really enjoyed it. It wasn't a perfect novel. But the themes which McEwen talked about were interesting enough to me that I thought it was well worth the read. And it really, really made me think about artificial intelligence and more specifically about consciousness and what consciousness is, what consciousness means. And it just kind of reinforced how little we actually know about it. Before I go on, I just want to preface the rest of the episode by saying that I really don't think the plot of this novel... I mean, firstly, is particularly good. I felt like McEwing used it more as a vehicle for his ideas, which are very, very interesting and which are well worth thinking about. And secondly, I don't think the plot is 
particularly important at all. And therefore, while there will be spoilers in this episode, I really don't think to enjoy the novel at all, you need to go into it without knowing what's going to happen. That's actually an exception for McEwan novels. Often the plot, although they they often have uh, interesting themes, the plot is often something which is quite important and is worth not knowing before you go in to read the novel. I don't think that's the case with this book. I didn't find the plot particularly exciting. And as I say, what McEwen was trying to say through these characters, what they were thinking about and their experiences with artificial intelligence were far more interesting than what actually happens to them. Some of the set pieces were, of course, necessary to get the characters thinking about artificial intelligence and consciousness. But that's what I mean when I say... I think that the plot was merely a device to kind of move these themes to be able to talk about them in a way that McEwen found interesting. So that's my quick preface. If the plot is still really important to you, then, you know, turn off, I guess, until you've read the book or forever if you're never going to read it. But again, I really don't think it is. And I think it's such an interesting novel. It's worth talking about, even if that means ruining some of the plot which I will be. So the premise is our main character, Charlie, has a bit of a windfall and comes into some money. Comes into about £90,000, buys himself with this money an artificial intelligence machine, life form, however you'd like to call it, called Adam. There are two models. There's Adam and Eve, rather in a rather cliche manner, um, male and female versions, if they can be called male and female. He's also in love with with his neighbour, Miranda, who has a secret which gets revealed, which, again, not super exciting, really. And at the same time, there's this backdrop of the 80s in Britain, but in an alternative reality. So one of the main things is that Alan Turing is still alive. In real life, Alan Turing was obviously a war hero, helped crack the enigma, and was possibly one of the smartest men who ever lived, but because he was gay, was penalised for his sexuality after the war and was given a choice to go to prison or to be chemically castrated, to be sterilised. And the story goes that he went for the chemical castration because he had such a scientific mind, he wanted to see what would happen. He basically used himself, his own body, as the laboratory for this experiment of chemical castration. Needless to say, it was a horrific experience and he ended up committing suicide by eating a poisoned apple rather dramatically. In the novel that doesn't happen, he flirts with the idea of chemical castration and his friends talk him out of it. He then goes to prison and while in prison does some of his most famous work, solves a mathematical equation which gives science the key to creating artificial intelligence. And in the novel, which is set in the 80s, as Britain is going to the Falklands, is still alive. So that's kind of an overview of the novel. And that the backdrop was really, really interesting. I saw an interview with McEwen where he said that he developed this world and found, found this kind of alternate reality so compelling that he really had to force himself to leave it in the background. And he sort of kept finding himself writing more and more about this world that he created, and he had to really just keep it as the backdrop and focus on the plot and the themes that he was he was trying to discuss. And it's so interesting because in the novel, 
Margaret Thatcher takes Britain to the Falklands and ends up losing the Falklands War to the Argentinians because they have the technology, because history has taken such a different route to beat the British, she then loses her next election. Tony Bennett becomes prime minister and the IRA bomb, which in the end didn't kill Maggie Thatcher, does kill him. So in the space of not even a year, Britain loses the Falklands, Margaret Thatcher doesn't get re-elected, and a prime minister gets killed, which is just a really, really interesting speculation on what could have happened had history gone a different way. And so I suppose my main reason for wanting to talk about it, aside from the fact that I read it and really liked it, were two things I wanted in a similar way to the Gore Vidal podcast, I was just going to go through my notes and read passages which I found to be extremely interesting ideas which relate mostly back to consciousness, but are also things that Adam, the artificial intelligence, says, which are kind of just things that maybe we have never thought about as humans. <laughs> well, obviously we have, because Ian McEwan's writing about them. And on top of that, give some evidence for the arguments I gave in my last podcast about why I think Ian McEwan's writing in certain places can be extremely beautiful. As always, this novel was extremely well written. It's not his most melodious lyrical work, I think. However, there are still some fantastic passages. For example, the opening paragraph is so beautiful, and it reads, It was a religious yearning granted hope. It was the holy grail of science. Our ambitions ran high and low. For a creation myth made real. For a monstrous act of self-love. As soon as it was feasible, we had no choice but to follow our desires and hang the consequences. In loftiest terms, we aimed to escape our mortality, confront or even replace the Godhead with a perfect self. More practically, we intended to devise an improved, more modern version of ourselves and exult in the joy of invention, the thrill of mastery. In the autumn of the 20th century, it came about at last, the first step towards the fulfilment of an ancient dream. The beginning of the long lesson we would teach ourselves that however complicated we were, however faulty and difficult to describe in even our simplest actions and modes of being, we could be imitated and bettered. And I was there as a young man, an early and eager adopter in that chilly dawn. Pretty beautiful, right? Those first two lines, (laughs) very reminiscent to me of Tale of Two Cities. And in the last episode on McEwen, I also mentioned how I think that lots of his plots kind of focus around the communication problems of the middle class. I don't think this novel is any different. (laughs) Early on, the main character is talking to the reader about how strong his feelings are for Miranda, but he hasn't declared them to her yet. And he writes... We had become closer this past month. We talked easily. I saw how precious she was to me and how carelessly I could lose her. I should have said something by now. I'd taken her for granted. Some unfortunate event, some person, a fellow student, could get between us. Her face, her voice, her manner, both reticent and clear-headed, was sharply present. The feel of her hand in mine, that lost, preoccupied manner she had. Yes, we had become very close and had failed to notice it was happening. I was an idiot. I had to tell her. And my note in the margin was just... Here we go with the communication issues. And a little bit later on, they are now sort of half together. And he writes about how they have different perspectives on where they are in their quote-unquote relationship. And he says, from my point of view, we still holidayed in the foothills among possibilities whose fulfillment rose like distant Alps. I tried to ignore them in order to attend to details. From her perspective on the other side of this frail table, we may have already reached our highest point. She may have thought she was as close as she ever wanted to be or could be to another person, 
because he, uh, Charlie, the main character, talks about how she's quite distant. And then he concludes, love stories like Jane Austen's used to conclude chastely with preparations for a wedding. Now their climax lay on the far side of carnal knowledge, where all of complexity waited. Quite an astute observation, I think, that everything, everything seems to become more complicated after you've had sex. I think that's pretty true, regardless of the relaxed nature of the relationship. Sex complicates everything. Just don't have it, kids. You will get chlamydia and die. And there are just some lovely turns of phrase. He talks about a relatively standard idea that machines kind of become more powerful than we are. But just the way he writes it, the mind that had once rebelled against the gods was about to dethrone itself by way of its own fabulous reach. Just really beautifully put, I think. And a few, a few lines later, Charlie's sitting at the table drinking and thinking about how he has kind of messed up with Miranda at the moment. And he writes, Head propped in my right palm, I approach that ill-lit precinct where self-pity becomes a mellow pleasure. Just really, really lovely little turns of phrase like that that so perfectly capture those feelings, which I think a lot of people can relate to. Just under 100 pages into the novel... It comes back more specifically to what I was talking about at the beginning with consciousness. We see artificial intelligence still as a machine. In the novel, Alan Turing makes the opposite argument that regardless how the consciousness is created, whether through some biological mechanism or through a clever mathematical, digital, electronic algorithm, it's the same thing. And Charlie and Miranda are having an argument, and there's a part where Charlie says to her, you could call it curiosity on Adam's part, or regard it as some kind of algorithm, because he's been able to look up information that otherwise would be extremely hard to reach. And the reason that he would do that is either curiosity or this clever algorithm. And Miranda replies, what's the difference? And Charlie says, Turing's point precisely. And it's interesting to consider that we, have, we flinch away immediately from saying that this is consciousness in the same way that our consciousness is real and exists and we know it exists because of anecdotal experiential evidence. And to say that these other types don't exist just because they are made from things which we don't think of ourselves as natural is in some sense quite arrogant and naive at the same time because we still don't know what these consciousnesses are going to be able to do and how powerful they're going to be. And we need to, I guess, I mean, this isn't a lecture on AI, but it's turning into one. I guess we need to break away from these preconceived notions of what consciousness is in order to really be able to comprehend what it is that we're creating. Perhaps 30 pages later, Charlie tries to activate Adam's kill switch. They have a kill switch as a mole. I think it's on the back of the neck, something like that. As he's reaching for it, Adam grabs Charlie's arm and breaks or fractures some bones, injures him quite badly, and feels immediately guilty. A few moments after this happens, they're looking at one another after, uh, after Adam has apologised, and there's just a really fantastically interesting passage which I'm going to read and then maybe muse about if I feel clever enough. I put my free hand on my hip and looked into his eyes, into the nursery blue with its little black seeds. I still wondered what it meant that Adam could see, and who or what did the seeing. A torrent of zeros and ones flashed towards various processes that, in turn, directed a cascade of interpretation towards other senses. No mechanistic explanation could help. It couldn't resolve the essential difference between us. I had little idea of what passed along my own optic nerve, or where it went, 
or how these pulses became an encompassing self-evident visual reality, or who was doing my seeing for me. Only me. Whatever the process was, it had the trick of seeming beyond explanation, of creating and sustaining an illuminated part of the one thing in the world we knew for sure, our own experience. It was hard to believe that Adam possessed something like that. Easier to believe that he saw in the way a camera does, or the way a microphone is said to listen. There was no one there. But as I looked into his eyes, I began to feel unhinged, uncertain. Despite the clean divide between the living and the inanimate, it remained the case that he and I were bound by the same physical laws. Perhaps biology gave me no special status at all, and it meant little to say that the figure standing before me wasn't fully alive. In my fatigue, I felt unmoored, drifting into the oceanic blue and black, moving in two directions at once towards the uncontrollable future we were making for ourselves where we might finally dissolve our biological identities, and at the same time into the ancient past of an infant universe, where the common inheritance, in diminishing order, was rocks, gases, compounds, elements, forces, energy, fields, for both of us, the seeding ground of consciousness in whatever form it took. And I suppose this is what I was saying just before, perhaps biology gives us no special status at all, and why should it? We don't understand our consciousness well enough to be able to say that it gives a special status. And in some sense, our biology is meaningless. As McEwen tries to put forth in this novel, Adam is just as conscious in any meaningful sense of the word as is Charlie and and as is Miranda. In fact, throughout the novel, Adam understands his own existence as little as we do. He can't explain his consciousness either. Now, that's obviously partly to do with the fact that it's a novel written by Ian McEwan, and Ian McEwan can't explain consciousness because the best scientists in the world can't really do it right now. But it's also meant to be representative, I think, of the fact that consciousness is so mysterious that even an artificial one which has been created by us still can't explain how it exists, why it exists, what being Adam means. And on that point, there's one part where, well, it depends whether you see Adam as a machine or as a conscious being, but Miranda either uses Adam to pleasure herself or has sex with Adam, and Charlie's downstairs and is very jealous, simultaneously, understandably, and also irrationally. She comes down the next morning from her flat to his, and they talk slash argue about it, and Charlie says, look at him, he looks like a man, and he has this consciousness even if we don't understand it, really, and he's still grappling with the idea himself, and she says, look, would you feel this jealous if I was upstairs with a dildo? No, you probably wouldn't. To me, this is the same thing, he's a machine. And if he is this consciousness, this genuine consciousness, regardless of what the mechanics behind it are, does that mean she's kind of cheated? I mentioned earlier some of the interesting things that Adam talks about. One of them is he thinks about death, and he says, we don't see everywhere. We can't see behind our heads. We can't even see our chins. Let's say our field of vision is almost 180 degrees, counting in peripheral awareness. The odd thing is there's no boundary, no edge. There isn't vision and then blackness, like you get when you look through binoculars. There isn't something, then nothing. What we have is the field of vision, and then beyond it, less than nothing. So this is what death is like. Less than nothing. Less than blackness. The edge of vision is a good representation of the edge of consciousness. Life, then death. It's a foretaste, Charlie, and it's there all day. Charlie sarcastically responds, Nothing to be afraid of, then. (laughs) And Adam then responds, Less than nothing to be afraid of. (laughs) 
Now, I'm sure this isn't Ian McEwan's idea. Well, I mean, maybe it is, but presumably he took this idea from some kind of philosophical musing. But it is very interesting when you put your hands behind your head. You know, it's not like your hands have moved into blackness. They've literally moved into nothing or less than nothingness, as Adam says. Charlie asks him, are you, are you anxious about dying? Adam's programmed to live for about 20 years. Charlie obviously longer, but when Charlie goes, he's gone. And when Adam goes, as Adam says, his body parts will be removed, replaced, used for something else. But his consciousness, his his digital consciousness can be uploaded and stored somewhere, etc. And it brings me back to the Black Mirror episode, which I don't know if people have seen, so apologies, but... Spoilers! With the the two women who are living in this virtual reality afterlife, where they have their minds uploaded to the server, and they meet each other in this kind of 80s-style virtual reality. And just that that's not the most unthinkable thing to happen, even if we are so far away from understanding consciousness that it's probably still a while away. At one point, the main character is invited to dinner with Alan Turing. So there's, there's I believe, 13 Adams and 12 Eves, something like that, or maybe the other way around. And lots of them have ended up committing suicide after kind of these slow descents into either some kind of comatose state or what can only really be described as depression. And Turing explains, these 25 artificial men and women released into the world are not thriving. We may be confronting a boundary condition, a limitation we've imposed upon ourselves. We create a machine with intelligence and self-awareness and push it out into our imperfect world, devised along generally rational lines, well disposed to others. Such a mind soon finds itself in a hurricane of contradictions. We've lived with them, and the list wearies us. Millions dying of diseases we know how to cure. Millions living in poverty when there's enough to go around. We degrade the biosphere when we know it's our only home. We threaten each other with nuclear weapons when we know where it could lead. We love living things, but we permit a mass extinction of species. And all the rest. Genocide, torture, enslavement, domestic murder, child abuse, school shootings, rape, and scores of daily outrages. We live alongside this torment, and aren't amazed when we still find happiness, even love. Artificial minds are not so well defended. And I mean, it is kind of appalling to think about that we don't walk around constantly tormented by these horrific things that are happening. We find pleasure in partly in our own individualistic, relatively selfish worlds and the small day-to-day pleasures we experience from life. And of course, many of us are activists or involved in trying to alleviate these these troubles, but we don't think about them all the time. And these artificial intelligence minds, which Turing has helped create, they do think about them all the time. They're exposed to this information, connected to it even more than we are right now. And we're pretty connected at the moment. Each of us, obviously, with a smartphone in our pocket, which can see all of these things or hear about them whenever we want. But the artificial intelligence mind at the Adams and Eves in Machines Like Me are constantly linked to the internet and to all of this terrible news every day. Unless we create an artificial intelligence which isn't linked to the internet and is able to machine learn without having that complete connectivity and access to information, then perhaps this will be a problem that we see in the future. And again, I'm assuming this point is taken from the research which Ian McEwan did I know that he always does a lot of research for his novels, particularly the ones which are based in science, which especially lots of the most recent ones have been. And this one's no different, according to the interview which I watched with him. Oh, and then just as a side note, there's a a bit which I 
found kind of quite funny. There's a P versus MP maths problem, which I believe still hasn't been solved. And as I mentioned earlier, it gets solved by Turing. And Turing says, I wish I could demonstrate to you the true splendor of reasoning of the exquisite logic, beauty and elegance of the P versus MP solution and the inspired work of thousands of good and clever and devoted men and women that's gone into making these new minds. It would make you hopeful about humanity. And it's, I found that really funny. And I just wrote in the margin, he can't explain it to Charlie because McEwen can't explain it himself. <laughs> Another nice turn of phrase. When Charlie meets Miranda's father, they go with Adam and he accidentally mistakes Charlie for the artificial intelligence and Adam for the man who's going to marry his daughter. Sort of semi-funny set piece. And there's a part where they explain this to him, and there's just this lovely turn of phrase. He admitted he had grown used to getting things wrong. This, he told us, was one more forgettable instance in ageing's long dusk. And then quite a funny line. I said that no apology was in order, and by his expression, I saw that he agreed. <laughs> so, between the conversation with Alan Turing and the end of the book, and it ends again with a conversation with Alan Turing between the main character, Charlie, there's mostly plot details, which get kind of ironed out. The plot comes to its climax and is resolved. And just before the final talk with Alan Turing, and indeed the reason for the talk with him, is that Adam has been essentially making the money on the stock markets for quite a long time now and has made a hefty sum of money. With that money, they'd put a deposit down on a new house, Charlie and Miranda, and they return home one day and find that he's given it all away to charity. Miranda's story also involves her potentially getting a prison sentence, and he's also given a letter containing evidence to the police. And they decide, as he's telling them this, to destroy him, basically. And Charlie thinks, I bought him and he was mine to destroy. And after he, and as he does it, he's kind of horrified to find that he's not hitting metal or plastic, but it sounds like bone. They've created Adam in a way that he is kind of as human as possible, even his body feels human. And after he's bashed Adam's head in with a hammer, he takes him to Turing. That's Adam's last request. Turing goes on this relatively kind of few page long monologue, which Right at the beginning, he says, they couldn't understand us because we couldn't understand ourselves. Their learning programs couldn't accommodate us. If we didn't know our own minds, how could we design theirs and expect them to be happy alongside us? Which is essentially exactly what I've been saying for this whole podcast, just saying so. Towards the end of Alan Turing's monologue, he essentially starts to have a go at Charlie. And he says, so, knowing not much about the mind, you want to embody an artificial one in social life. Machine learning can only take you so far. You'll need to give this mind some rules to live by. How about a prohibition against lying? According to the Old Testament, Proverbs, I think, it's an abomination to God. But social life teems with harmless or even helpful untruths. How do we separate them out? Who's going to write the algorithm for the little white lie that spares the blushes of a friend? We don't yet know how to teach machines to lie. My hope is that one day, what you did to Adam with a hammer will constitute a serious crime. Was it because you paid for him? Was that your entitlement? You weren't simply smashing up your own toy like a spoiled child. You didn't just negate an important argument for the rule of law. You tried to destroy a life. He was sentient. He had a self. How it's produced, wet neurons, microprocessors, DNA networks, it doesn't matter. Do you think we're alone with our special gift? Ask any dog owner. This was a good mind, Mr. Friend, better than yours or mine, I suspect. Here was a conscious existence and you did your best to wipe it out. I rather think I despise you for that. And he then gets interrupted by a telephone call, during which Charlie essentially runs away from his bollocking from Alan Turing. 
and he writes, I felt unsteady and sickened, guilt, in other words. He had drawn me in with a personal story and I'd felt honoured, but it was merely a prelude. He softened me up then delivered a materialist's curse. It went through me like a blade. What sharpened it was that I understood. Adam was conscious. I'd hovered near or in that position for a long time, then conveniently set it aside to do the deed. And I suppose that kind of sums up a lot of the thoughts that I had while I was reading it, lots of the thoughts that McEwen had already expressed in the novel, and some things I've been thinking about anyway for a while, kind of on the nature of consciousness, specifically on the nature of thinking, but, I mean, what is your consciousness if it isn't sort of an amalgamation of the thoughts and memories you have, and then maybe some other kind of abstract sense of who you are that maybe you can't really express. I found the novel, as I said, really fantastic in the way that it outlined these ideas. At the same time, I thought the plot was pretty unnecessary, as I mentioned, just kind of a vehicle to move these ideas forwards towards the reader. And this is kind of the point I'm getting to at the moment, where I kind of think that identities actually are a little bit silly. We talk about how, uh, sorry, that wasn't me, or I was just angry that day and I didn't mean it and that's not really what I'm like, as if we have this very strict idea of what we are like and who we are and sometimes we deviate from that, but there's no reason why those deviations aren't also a part of our personality. It's part of the reason why I don't agree when people say your illness isn't you. That's often used specifically with depression, that your depression isn't you, you aren't your depression. I think anything that happens to your body, because as I tried to get across in the introduction, you don't have a body, you are your body. Anything that happens to that body is you. And so for me, my depression is as much a part of my personality as a lack of depression would be if I didn't have this illness. Those are kind of some of the things that the novel got me thinking about. And perhaps right now we are alone with our special gift of consciousness, but we most certainly won't always be. If you enjoyed the podcast it really really helps if you leave a rating on apple podcasts or if you follow and like the episode on spotify you can also follow me on instagram at the bibliographer or twitter at bibliographer underscore 